Hello, welcome to Head On History. I am your host, Ali A. Alomi. This podcast is brought to you by Audible. Head over to audibletrial.com slash headonhistory to get your free audiobook and support this podcast. I hope everyone is enjoying this season so far. I've been having fun this kind of other Islam season. Today marks the second to last episode. We're going to do two final episodes, and then that will be the end of this season. This season, we've talked about everything from the margins of Islam. We've talked about uh, moved beyond the kind of narrative of, 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 of a so-called Muslim heartland and looked at Islam in Africa, Islam in Europe, Al-Maghrib, Al-Andalus, Southeast Asia, even in uh, China. Today, what I want to do is talk about Islam and the new, the so-called new world. We're going to look at Islam in the United States or Islam in America today, and we're going to end the season with Islam in South America. I'm very interested uh, in South America in particular and, and Islam there, so I'm excited for next week's episode. But for this week, we're going to focus on the United States. I think in many ways this history, like the history of China, is very relevant right now. Um, and I think it's critical to understand this history in order to push back on kind of simplistic and reductive narratives, particularly narratives of, of clash of civilizations or that try to transform Islam as, as kind of inherently un-American or, or not, uh, or somehow foreign, in other words. Uh, so I want, I want to really dig deep into this because it's also quite fascinating. The story of Islam in the United States is really a story of colonialism, a story of race, a story of nation building, um, and really a story of, of identity. And so we're going to dig down in, into some themes that I think, even if you're not interested in Islam uh, or world history or U.S. history, that I think you'll find interesting um, and politically relevant to this particular moment. There are, now, there is some speculation that Muslims arrived in America, or what is today the United States, as early as the 14th century. There might have been some minor excursions from the west coast of Africa or from Moorish Spain. There's some speculation that perhaps after the Reconquista that uh, Muslims might have explored uh, into the in, in the ocean, and the scholars of the Caribbean in particular believe that there's some possible evidence of this, of Muslims arriving um, on the, you know, in, in the Caribbean and, and perhaps even the Gulf of Mexico. We don't, we're not quite sure. The evidence there is kind of scant, but some, there's some exists. We do know that uh, Muslims were part of early maritime exploration as both crew members, as pirates, um, and as ship captains. So there's stronger records there. Um, the largest population of Muslims, however, came from African slaves. Africa had a very vibrant slave trade for many centuries with the Gold Coast uh, and the Guinea Coast, where European colonists arrive, having several large Muslim states, um, including the you know nations of the Hausa, the Man Dinka, the Senegalese, modern-day uh, Senegal, um, Sierra Leone, that those uh, regions, um, and it is estimated that there was upwards of fifteen to thirty percent, uh, perhaps even higher, of African slaves were perhaps Muslim. Now we're not quite sure on the numbers because no one was keeping track. There are no demographics that we can turn to. There isn't like a census that we can look at and go, okay, there's this many slaves. So this is a speculation on behalf of historians. A very conservative estimate puts it between fifteen to about uh, 20%, and other scholars uh, argue that it's upwards of 30 and a little bit higher than that. Um, now, 
we should note here, take a moment and kind of examine what we mean by slavery and the slave trade, because I think this is quite important. African slave trade already existed before the arrival of European colonists, and it was much like the slave trade in the Middle East and the Indian Ocean, including the Muslim uh, slave trading. All of this was rooted in a different set of values than the transatlantic slave trade, which really dominated uh, the slave trade that we see in the Anglo world, particular. Um, we see that the Spanish slave trade is a slightly different from what we see in um, the England, uh, the, what was carried out by the English. Um, but focusing right now on Africa, the Indian Ocean, and, and the Muslim slave trade, as well as the African slave trade, um, there is a component to this that is contractual. That is to say that slaves are owned, but they had some limited rights. In some cases, slavery was often a result of... Uh, conquest, but in some cases it was a result of debt. Now, that said, there is this kind of weird attempt to take this nuance about slavery, of recognizing that there is a certain a difference between slavery as it already existed in Africa. Um, there is an attempt to take that nuance and try to erase that history. There's also an attempt to take that history and oversimplify the narrative. So what you end up happening is kind of two different uh, motives. On one hand, you have a motive that goes, no, slavery only showed up when the Europeans arrived. That's not true. Slavery already existed in Africa. There's another motive that goes, oh, well, slavery already existed in Africa. There's nothing that the Europeans did that was particularly different. Africans were selling Africans for years. That's not entirely accurate either. That notion of slavery that existed in Africa was starkly different from what we see uh, that comes after. Now, that doesn't mean that that you know we can just ignore that. No, there was slavery there, and we should note that. And any type of weird... I mean, if you ever find yourself in that weird and twisted position and when you're trying to apologize for slavery and i use the word apologize here in its classical sense the sense of d offering up a defense if you're offering up a defense whether you're offering up a defense of of uh, african slavery and the muslim slavery that existed there or you're offering up a defense of european slavery going, oh well, the africans were already something you found yourself in a really murky messed up place so just stop hold your horses you're clearly gone in the wrong direction so let's as historians acknowledge that slavery existed already in africa but what we find is that transatlantic slavery was really a different beast than than the than africans had encountered before on one hand the scale was immense uh, this sprung up from the huge demand so this is not a small uh, slave trade. while there was slave ports and slave mar mar markets and slavery in uh, Africa, it often happened nation to nation, uh, tribe to tribe. I hate using the word tribe. It's not exactly accurate. Nation is more more accurate in this regard, or kingdom to kingdom, empire to empire. Um, and it involved a sort of integrative component in which slaves were integrated into the society. Um, and so there was that contractual basis. On this instance, the, the transatlantic slavery was massively different. It was so much larger in scale. It was really about building an entirely new society run based off of the economy of slavery, and that is the new world.
right? So that's the first thing to acknowledge, that this is, you know, a completely different beast in regards to size. The second was that it was shaped by what we call chattel slavery. That is that slaves were reduced to the sum of their parts. They were objects. They were merely objects. They didn't have rights. They didn't have any kind of uh, laws protecting them. They were just objects that you could buy and property that you could own. So it was a much more brutal. Um, it's also important, uh, this is really important to understand kind of the role of Islam in America in particular, this difference in slavery. Islam already has experience in slavery. We have the Mamluks, as we talked about in season one and season two, the, the Ghilman, the Janissaries, you know, slavery exists in the Muslim world. But the experience of Muslim slaves were so radically different in the transatlantic slave trade that it produced a particular type of result that we'll talk a little bit uh, different. In other words, the Muslim slaves were experiencing something entirely new from what their previous experiences were, their previous understanding of slavery was. This was they were countering these new slavers and like, what are they doing? This, this isn't right. The brutality, the indignity, and the oppression was something that they had not expected. For example, the restriction on the right to practice your religion was something starkly different from slavery that they had experienced in Africa itself, and it became a very serious source of contention. So in, both in Africa and in the broader Indian Ocean and the Muslim world, the slavery that we find there allowed slaves to maintain some elements of their identity. More often than not, they remained there. They, you know, they kept their names, they kept their religious practice, even if they were owned physically by somebody else. And so we would find there were there were people who still continued to practice indigenous African traditions and African religions, and they continued those religious practices, um, as well as. Um, those who were non-Muslim, uh, there was incentives to convert to Islam, certainly, right? You'd gain more rights, more access, the possibility of being freed, etc. But the restriction on religious practice as they experienced in the transatlantic slave trade was something that, that really uh, led to a series of, uh, you know, kind of the budding of tension between uh, Muslim slaves and, and their slavers. Naturally, there's little record of Muslims that can be found in the colonial period. But there is some material evidence, and I want to go over some of that material evidence because I think it's quite uh, rich and it tells us a little bit about the lives that Muslims lived, African Muslims lived in uh, the kind of beginnings of the United States or in America. We have remnants of small charm bags that either include whole Qurans, and these were very small Qurans, and, you know, the size of a, of a thumb, if you will, um, or pieces of paper on, upon which Quranic verses were written. Now, these were worn by Muslims and non-Muslims alike. African Muslims springing from that kind of scholarly tradition that we talked about in my previous episode on Islam in Africa and Islam in Maghreb, remember Timbuktu, etc. They emerged as expert ritual doctors. And their skills, particularly their scholarly skills in writing and reading, made them crafters of talismans that could be worn for protection. So whether you were a Muslim or a non-Muslim, you would seek out these scholars, these Muslim scholars who were versed in Arabic, and they would write these kind of verses for you, Quranic verses, that would then be placed in these charm bags, and then, then you would wear them for protection. They were reputed to make you bulletproof, to keep you safe, to return you home, and so on and so forth. These charm bags are very similar to what we see amongst the Mantika people and the Hausa people um, in West Africa. So that we have a very clear connection to Africa here in the creation of these charm bags. We also see here evidence of both a Muslim community, right, one that is trying to really 
cling to its practices. That is, the Quran as a holy book, uh, the reading, the writing of the Quran, and Muslims forging some form of kind of authority and power within slave communities as spiritual leaders, right? By virtue of their expertise in reading and writing, trying to forge some element of their previous authority. They were scholars in, in say, uh, in a nation, in the Mandinka nation, and then they come over here, they lose the nation, but they try to, to salvage some of that authority and identity by carrying out the same kind of practices that they did in Africa, uh, being ritual experts and creating these kind of talismans. The presence of Muslims are also found in documents written by slave owners themselves. Uh, for example, George Washington, uh, you know, the, the great founding father as we refer to him, right, actually lists two female slaves, Fatima and little Fatima, in his kind of taxable property. Now, this is without a doubt reference to Fatima, the daughter of Muhammad. So likely both of these slaves were African Muslims. So we have evidence in the kind of record keeping, in the names that we see. Um, restrictions on the practice of faith led to heavy resistance, though. So Muslims ended up becoming the core of several slave rebellions. So much so that one slaver actually notes, Muhammadians, which was the word that they referred to Muslims, meaning the followers of Muhammad, make bad servants because they could bow only to God. And so we find that as a result of the kind of rebellious nature of Muslims, um, that there was a series of really strong oppressions against on the plantation on practicing Islam, that the in that the people who practice Islam had to do so in private, as well as an attempt to kind of force convert people into Christianity. And we'll talk about both of those instances in kind of case examples in just a moment. And so even though we have these kind of trace evidence, these kind of charm bags, the references in tax documents and property documents, there isn't a lot a lot much else than that because of this tense relationship. Because of the experience of Muslims and this kind of new form of slavery that they hadn't encountered before, and because of their resistance to that, there was a serious uh, kind of effort to kind of suppress them. And as a result of that suppression, this history ended up becoming kind of uh, subs you know, submerged in the kind of depths of time. We ended up losing a lot. So we don't know, um, you know a lot about the Muslims living in the plantation era. Just little traces that we try to pull the threads on in order to kind of bring back those stories. So let's talk a little bit about those stories, these kind of case examples that help us understand life. We know that Muslims took part in the Revolutionary War. So they, not only did they exist in the plantation moment, but they were actually participants in the kind of political experience of early America. We have records of someone named Yusuf bin Ali, who was part of the Continental Army, and he fought for uh, American independence, very famously referred to in, in the documents, Yusuf bin Ali. But we also have others like Muhammad Bilali, Bilali, not Bilal, but Bilali, who was a loyalist. He originally uh, fought with the British, uh, but he was eventually sold to a guy named Thomas Spaulding of Sapelo Island. Sapelo Islands are these small islands off the, course, the, the, the coast of Georgia. And because he was literate, he was appointed to manage the Spaulding estate. What's fascinating about him is that he leaves behind a document known as the Belali Document, which is a treaty of Islamic law. Now, originally, scholars had thought that this was some type of autobiography, but it actually ends up being a treatise on Islamic law. It's a risalah. Um, it's indicate, and this indicates that he was very educated, that he was probably a, tr a trained religious scholar, uh, probably trained in, in the Guinea coast, uh, on one of the smaller universities, perhaps even making his way to Timbuktu. 
Um, he wore a fez, he prayed five times a day, and he kept most of his Muslim practices. And he leaves behind this document that tells Muslims how to practice Islam. He tells them how to pray, he gives the basic tenets of faith. Um, this likely, from it, we can kind of glean that he was probably trained in the Malaki Madhab, which is the common Madhab of, of, of that region. Now, his legacy is also found to this day. He is believed to be the forefather of the Gula people who are uh, who live on the Sepelo Islands. And because they live on the Sepelo Islands, a little bit off the, the coast of Georgia, they retain some remnant of their original culture and some Muslim practices still exist in the Gula practices. Like, for example, taking off your shoes when praying or praying towards the east, uh, praying towards sunrise. That's, that's all kind of the, the residuals, if you will, of a Muslim influence from this Muslim uh, founder of theirs, Muhammad Bilali. But here we have evidence on Bayi Bayi Bilali of religious texts being right, written in America. Right, that the Sharia, the fear of Sharia law, isn't this foreign invasion? Then no, Sharia law was being written and practiced about here in America. We also have evidence uh, in the form of of painting. There is a, a gentleman by the name of Yaro Maumat who was a slave of fuller origin. And like Bilali, he was literate and he could speak and write Arabic. And he was a slave to Samuel Beale for about 44 years until he won his freedom. I think he was around 16, 17 when he was originally captured. And he wasn't uh, released until he was 60. But he saved up his money and, it up, and he ended up purchasing property in D.C. And he became a lender for merchants, kind of an entrepreneur in his day. Um, and he had a, his painting por- uh his portrait painted by Charles Wilson Peel. It's quite a wonderful portrait. If you ever get a chance at this, check out Yarrow Moment's uh, uh, portrait here. He's an older man, uh, very clearly a careworn face, worn by life, but really exuding gravitas, and he's snuggled up quite warmly. Um, but it's a fantastic, fantastic portrait, and it is a visual representation. Uh, it's one of the kind of material evidence we've talked about of, of Muslims existing, not only existing, but carving out a new life for themselves. There's also uh, two other figures. One is Omar ibn Said and uh, Ib- Abdul Rahman Ibrahim. Now, Omar Said was fascinating because he was actually a prominent religious figure from Senegal. We have evidence, perhaps, of Omar's connection to Senegal. He lived in North Carolina. Now, unlike uh, Momut, he was a slave until he died. He was he never uh, managed to ga- gain his freedom, but he quite famously escaped and ran away from his master in Charleston. Now, this goes back to what I was talking about earlier about the core of a lot of slave rebellions and resistance ending up being coming from from the Muslim groups because of the resistance to this kind of form of slavery. And we see this in the life of Omar ibn Said. So he becomes a kind of living testament of that history that we talk about there. Um, he was forced, unfortunately, he was unfortunately forced to convert uh, to, Islam, to Christianity, but he continued to secretly be a Muslim. That's the other experience that, that I talked about earlier, right? The suppression of Muslims. He was recaptured, sold into slavery, then forced conversion, right? Forcing, kind of erasing his, trying to erase his 
Muslim identity because the idea was that because he was Muslim, he was too rebellious. And if we could just convert him to Christianity, we could so supposedly tame him, so to speak, in kind of a really horrific way of thinking about it. But that, that was the kind of rationale behind it. But we know that he continued to be secretly a Muslim. And this is a way in which everyday resistance exists, even when you're faced with kind of this overwhelming force that's forcing you to convert and for you to publicly make these kind of changes in your life. For example, we have his Bible, and in his Bible, he attests to Muhammad. Now, quite amusingly, he also writes down on a, on a small card, Surah An-Nasr, which is one of the surahs of the Quran. And after his death, someone misidentifies Surah An-Nasr as the Lord's Prayer, which tells us a couple things. First and foremost, the person who misidentifies it clearly wasn't as educated as Omar ibn Said was. That uh, Omar ibn Said himself was far more educated than the, the than his perhaps his master or his master's descendants. Um, but two, also that there is a lot of similarity still between the Quran uh, and uh, the Bible, or at least the Lord's Prayer. That there's so much similarity there that you could easily mistake the two. Now he wrote it in Arabic, so it's also possible that he just they were not very good at translating it. Now what makes Ibn Said so fascinating is that like Bilali, he wrote he wrote things down. Not just in the form of of his Bible, but he wrote fourteen manuscripts in Arabic. And this is a testament to his learning and education. One of these was his autobiography that tells his story uh, from how he lived in Senegal, how when he was captured, his religious background, throughout the entirety of it, he makes uh, you know he attests to the Muhammad as a prophet, to Allah as God, to Jesus as the Messiah. This is a man who is very versed in religion, very educated. It's a really, really important autobiography. But what's also fascinating is that in addition to his biography, he writes these religious texts and he writes the surahs of the Quran all from memory. Again, that tells us a little bit about the type of education that he had in Senegal and West Africa, that he likely was trained in classical Islamic learning, which involved memorizing the Quran, becoming a Hafiz, or at least memorizing several surahs of it and being able to recite it from memory. Here he is in his late 60s and 70s writing this, these manuscripts down, and he's writing it all from memory. And he's very conscious of that. He writes about, you know, if there's any lapses in memory, forgive me, I've done the best that I can. He makes entreaties onto God. But he writes these religious documents, these treaties about faith, and his personal biography, drawing all of that memory and really recording it down and preserving it for later generations. It is a really a wonderful treasure trove, um, and along with the Bilali document, indicates that there was an educated scholarly class of African Muslim slaves in America who were writing about things like faith and deen and sharia and iman and aqidah and all these uh, these Islamic sciences and, and, and practices. Finally, we have Abdul Rahman Ibrahim Ibn Zuri. Now, he was originally a nobleman, but he was taken into slavery. This again tells us about the nature of slavery as it existed in uh, West Africa, and of course that it was it went across 
class lines, across religious lines. It captured anyone that it could get a hold of. Now, his master jokingly referred to him, and perhaps dismissively or insultingly, as emir, which meant prince. So it was a, a way of kind of reminding him that maybe he was a noble, but that now he was a slave. But what's significant about his life is that he was actually freed by President John Quincy Adams on the request of the Sultan of Morocco. Now, this is the second way in which Islam interacts with America. So now we have the first way, the, a, a population of Africans brought over via the transatlantic slave trade who tried to preserve some semblance of Islam. So that's Islam in America, first part. The second part of uh, Islam in America is the way that it interacts with with. Uh, country to country. It was a Muslim country, Morocco, that was the first to recognize the United States as an independent and sovereign nation. The relationship and, and formalization of the friendship between Muslim Morocco and the United States um, is formalized in, in a treaty, actually. Uh, in 1777, Thomas Barclay negotiates a treaty, which is then later signed by John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, with the Sultan of Morocco. The friendship of Morocco and the United States is actually the basis for the relatively, and I use relatively here as, as a distinctive qualifier, the relatively friendly thoughts of the Founding Fathers towards Islam. We see evidence very early on that the Founding Fathers, at least in regards to religious liberty, uh, were open to, to Muslims. We know, for example, George Washington mentioned that he'd willing to take on any workmen, regardless of whether they're heathen, Mahmadian, etc. But also, for example, Thomas Jefferson reflects very uh, critically on on the works of, of John Locke, and he says, he says, neither pagan nor Mahometan nor Jew ought to be excluded from the civil rights of the commonwealth because of his religion. That then actually led that kind of thinking and, and you know, uh, speculating on, on John Locke leads him to actually enshrine religious liberty in law and particularly thinking about Jew and Muslim, their religious liberty particularly there. Um, and even even Benjamin Franklin goes, even if the Mufti of Constantinople were to send a missionary to preach Mahmadianism to us, he would find a pulpit at his surface. So they were, they were very open to, to Islam in their words. But what's interesting here we should note is that while there were, they were they acknowledged that there were Muslims that lived in the United States. They saw most of these Muslims as small communities. That these Muslims were also racialized. That when they're talking about religious liberty, they're talking about religious liberty through their friendship with the quote-unquote Muslim world. Morocco, Constantinople, that is the Ottoman world. So they, engaging with the Ottomans, engaging with North Africans, they... Uh, saw Muslims as related. They're like, okay, yeah, they're fine. You know, John Adams goes so far as to say, oh, Muhammad is a serious uh, inquirer into truth or a sober inquirer into truth. So they have a relatively positive relationship with Islam because they view Islam as a kind of religion uh, adjacent to Christianity and it is related to those countries that are friendly towards them. What they're not thinking about is even though they're saying that citizenship can be granted to anyone regardless of their re religion, whether they're Christian, whether they're Catholic, uh, whether they're Jew, whether they're Muslim. They are not, however, thinking of citizenship as uh, racially inclusive. So this is still a citizenship that is limited to white men. Does that make sense? There's a, this is a very nuanced point I'm trying to make here. Is that they're like, okay, yeah, we're willing to tolerate Muslims, 
but we're not tolerating black Muslims because we don't tolerate Africans in general, right? So Africans, the, there was no conceptualization of Africans becoming citizens of the United States. The, the, the original notions of citizenship in the United States revolved around creating exclusions to that. Gender being one exclusion of it, right? Women were not conceived as part of the citizenship. Um, and, and, and people of color were not considered part of the citizenship. Though religious liberty was... Now this is this is part of the kind of long progress of reinterpreting the constitution and reinterpreting the principles the fight for liberty the fight for equality that eventually brings the laws around to enshrine citizenship for all regardless of race creed or gender or sexuality Right, but that's a long history, a process of negotiation, of resistance, of activism, the hard work of people on the ground who pushed against the legal restrictions. What we see in these early moments is that while yes, they are thinking in this kind of moment, uh, this enlightenment moment of, of freedom for all, liberty for all, equality for all, the all generally refers to landed white men. So they're referring to a kind of aristocratic gentry, a kind of a group of lawyers, a group of, of scholars, white men who own land and property. They're not referring to everybody. That said, as a result of this, Muslims and black Muslims did become part of the fabric of uh, America. And we find that just as they were in the Revolutionary War, so too did they appear in the Civil War. Uh, Muhammad Khan was a very famous private that uh, fought on the side of the Union. And he was originally from Afghanistan, actually. So he's one of the first Afghans that, that showed up there. And then, there, of course, there was the Union Army Captain Moses Osman. So we have evidence of Muslims in the, the Civil War. These uh, Muslims are a combination of two. Muslims that uh, were Muslim because they arrived in the United States as Muslims. They were brought over as slaves, they were descendants, so they, sent, they were made, retained some element of their Muslimness. This number continued to shrink and shrink and shrink as a result of the process of suppression and forced conversion that I talked about earlier. But new populations of Muslims would arrive vis-a-vis -vis migration. We find, for example, a Syrian population emerging in the 19, uh, really migrating in the 19th century, as well as some uh, migrants from Constantinople, and for example, in the case of Muhammad Khan from the Persian world in Afghanistan. And it isn't really until 1887 that we have the first case of actual Anglo-American converting to Islam. And this was uh, a man who, who converted kind of fascinating. He has, he has his own kind of history here. He was a, he was a guy who, um, you know, found Islam kind of out of the blue. He, he, encountered it as a result of his experience as a politician and suddenly converted to Islam. Alexander Russell Webb was a member of a kind of a Republican party, he became a consul in the Philippines. And in 1887, Webb found Islam and he was actually introduced to Islam through the Ahmadiyya movement. Um, and this is through the work of Mirza Ghulam Ahmad of uh, Qadian, India. Uh, and we haven't talked a lot about the Ahmadiyyas. We've talked a little bit about the Ahmadiyya movement in season one. Um, I'll definitely uh, cover them uh, a little bit further 
uh, down the line. But basically, the Ahmadiyya movement had a lot of missionary work around Southeast Asia, uh, particularly, and they ended up making a lot of inroads into the United States as well. And Ahmadiyya movement is a deeply uh, non-violent, peaceful movement, but uh, faces a lot of persecution in Pakistan and India, particularly from Sunni Muslims, who view them as kind of, uh, uh, you know, breaking away from Orthodox Islam, particularly because some of the the beliefs of of the Ahmadiyyas involve um, uh, the notion that the prophethood continues after Muhammad, um, that there are prophets, though there are no messengers after Muhammad, no rasuls, no one will come with a text, that there are prophets that come after him, and Mirza Ghulam Ahmad being one of them. And so, you know, the the beliefs are a little bit different from Orthodox Islam, but they are uh, Muslims and and part of the fabric of, of the Islamic world. And though they face persecution, they have a pretty strong proselytizing or da'wah movement in which they call people to Islam. And that's how Alexander Russell Webb interacted with them or engaged with them. He came across the works of Mirza Ghulam Ahmad during the, in the Philippines and he met Ahmadiyyas. And he became, in 1887, the first convert to Islam. And this is kind of fascinating. It's, you know, it shows us that that Muslim conversion happened quite early on, um, that, that it wasn't just, you know, uh, foreigners and, and, and slaves, that people were engaging w- with Islam, that Islam was part of the fabric, the social makeup. And yeah, he, he converts when he's in the Philippines, but he travels the Muslim world, he comes back to the United States. So you have Muslims from a ro- kind of in, intersecting with America at so many different levels. You have it intersecting vis-a-vis um, black Muslims, uh, African American Africans who become African Americans, who originally are excluded from American society in several ways, who are oppressed and suppressed, and have their re- and their religious identity suppressed and oppressed, but eventually who fight through activism and hard work and through through uh, the struggle for social justice and equality, uh, fight back against those kind of oppression uh, oppressive structures and then are are brought into the fabric of American identity and so they bring Islam with them uh, as well as uh, immigrants who tra- come from the Muslim world the so-called Muslim world uh, because it's that's a bit of a problematic term but uh, that come over from from Syria and Lebanon and from uh, the Persian world and from uh, the Ottoman world and they come over here as well as people who convert to Islam themselves. It's why we have evidence of of, of these figures that exist in American society. Yeah. The quite famously Haji Ali, uh, who's uh, often called High Jolly in in the records, um, but he was part of the United States cavalry and he lived from 1850 and died here in the United States in Arizona in 1903 where he lived as a prospector and he married and had a whole family uh, in in the United States. Uh, Going all the way back to the figures that we talked about very early on in in, uh, the United States history from Omar Ibn Said to a figure that we didn't get a chance to talk to but uh, it's quite fascinating Ayuba Suleiman Diallo who's one of the most famous uh, African Muslims in the United States. Uh, I highly recommend taking a look at his autobiographies and his written body of work because I think it's useful. Black Islam um, remains relatively marginalized for much of this history. It becomes, while 10 to anywhere from 15 to 30 percent of Africans were Muslims, we see that number dwindle, dwindle, and dwindle. But with the uh, migration of Muslims in the 19th century coming into the United States and then the migration of black Americans, African Americans, 
northward, there's a revival of interest in Islam. Um, and so there's a new movement, Muslim movements in America, grounded in black identity and black Muslims. Now we start to see the, the emergence of sort of pan-African concepts, of black nationalism, all uh, entwined with Islam. An example of this would be the, the Moorish Science Temple of America, which was founded by Noble Drew Ali. Now, Noble, it kind of mixes Islam with certain uh, imaginings of Africa, a bit of mysticism, even Rosicrucianism, a sort of Christian mysticism, all kind of uh, fused together. And it's found in 1913 in Newark, New Jersey. And what uh, Drew Ali says is that, that uh, Africans are actually the descendants of the Moors, that they are Moorish in origin, and they have uh, a specific empire, a Moorish empire with its own uh, religious practices, that is Islam. But it's an Islam that is interpreted in regards to a, a kind of reimagined Africa, a pure African identity that exists, that is sort of primordial and rooted in notions of, of magic and mysticism, uh, that Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad are all kind of in reincarnations of this kind of spiritual truth. Um, and then this is passed down to the Moorish descendants through uh, noble Drew Ali in what becomes known as the Holy Quran of the Moorish Science Temple. Uh, and it's kind of this its, its own separate Quran. It is the Quran, but it also has uh, the Aquitarian Gospel, the Aquarian Gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, it has uh, Rosicrucian works involved. It has other kind of uh, writings in there. Um, and they believe that all African Americans are from the Moors, and they are descendants of the ancient Moabites. And so as a result, they wear, to demonstrate this, they wear a fez or a turban. Uh, and even women wear, wear kind of these uh, turbans on them. And they take on suffixes like bay or l. Um, and and they, you know, carry out their, their, their religious practices. And it's tied to this attempt to recreate and restructure black identity. This kind of fragment. If you think about it, right? The experience of slavery, taking in the people who lived in tribes, taking people who lived in nations, who had identities, who are Fula, who are Fulsa, who are uh, Senegalese, who are uh, Mandinka, who are, come from all these different kind of traditions and, and identities, and then kind of erasing that. The transatlantic slave trade completely wipes that away. Ancestry disappears, heritage disappears, and what's left are these kind of vestigial remnants of practices. Oh, you know, we take our shoes off when we pray, or we have these kind of charm bags, these, these things that you hold on to. So in many ways, the more Moorish Science Temple of America is an attempt to redress that error, to fix the fragmentation by recreating a sort of fictitious or imagined chain of transmission. We are one people, a Moorish people, descended from a great empire with a single religious tradition that is now being passed down. It was passed down from Buddha to Jesus, from Jesus to Muhammad, and now from Muhammad to me, noble Drew Ali, and I pass it on to you. So it's really an attempt to kind of recreate uh, African-American identity, the emergence of black nationalism. It is intimately tied to 
to Islam, both in the fact that Noble Drew Ali himself, was a, his father was Muslim, but also in the fact of that the, the Muslim migrants had started to move into Islam was widely spreading in the United States while remaining a minority religion, a very small population. We had evidence of Bosnian Muslims, we had evidence of Turkish Muslims, we had evidence of Afghan Muslims, um, and, and they were all interacting with the various communities, and particularly the black community, who became the foundation for uh, uh, immigrant communities. They ended up becoming the place which immigrant communities intersected with and interacted with. And so the Moorish Science Temple of America in many ways reflects this kind of the unique experience of Islam in America, of arriving vis-a-vis -vis slavery, of having, you know, this kind of abstract notion of religious tolerance that didn't, that, you know, oh yeah, Mohammedans are accepted, but didn't fully extend out to the experience of black Muslims having their traditions kind of erased forced conversion, suppression, etc. And then experiencing and reviving Islam anew and creating it within the fabric of America. I mean, the Moorish Science Temple of America is iconically American, fusing Islam with black identity, with uh, elements of Rosicrucianism, with uh, certain European mysticism, Christian mysticism, all of this kind of fusing, this kind of melting pot of ideas that really produces the Moorish Science Temple of, of America. And then, of course, after no, Noble Drew Ali passes away, um, it is um, it, the, the group splits, and eventually one of the splinter groups becomes the Nation of Islam, uh, which is founded in Detroit, Michigan, by Wallace D. Fard Muhammad, who claims to be the, uh, who claimed to be, uh, in 1930, to be the, the reincarnation of Noble Drew Ali. And it was really, again, an attempt to, to uh, you know, you know, recreate black identity, to create uh, a religious tradition that would elevate the social consciousness, the, the mental, the social, the economic, and the political uh, consciousness and experience of, of black Americans. When Afar disappears uh, in 1934 or so, Elijah Muhammad uh, takes over and he creates a school called the Muhammad University of Islam. Um, and so we have a very clear example here of, of how Islam continued in, in America. And while the Nation of Islam is sometimes controversial for people who accuse them of being kind of anti-Semitic and black supremacists, in reality, it is part of the American experience. It is that fusion, that the remnant, the memory of Islam fusing with an attempt to recreate uh, uh, black identity, to restructure those fragments, out of those fragments, to create some type of cohesive whole. I think I'm going to end with two kind of short stories, uh, anecdotes of two individuals that I think will help illustrate a lot of the kind of themes and questions that I've been uh, exploring here in this podcast and maybe bring this kind of big jumbled mess into some kind of uh, conclusion. Uh, first, I want to talk about Ayuba Suleiman Diallo. So Ayuba Suleiman Diallo was a scholar, religious scholar in Africa when he was kidnapped and sold into the transatlantic slave. Uh, and he was quite rebellious very early on. Uh, he was a young man. Uh, once, quite famously, he uh, was praying out in the woods when a kid made fun of him for, for the way he was praying because Muslim prayer, the Salat, involves kowtowing and bowing, which is known as, uh, you, know, uh, you know, doing a rakat of prayer in the Salat. And as a result of that, ran away. He ran away and refused to, to be, you know, uh, part of the plantation. And they, they caught him later on. 
And he was bought by a Mr. Tulsi of Kent Island in Maryland. And he faced a lot of, of, of serious kind of uh, repressive tactics there. But they recognized that he was also quite intelligent. And eventually he was purchased by a Oglethrope, I think, uh, purchased him and sent him to the London office of the Royal African Company in London. Because he was literate, because he was educated, even though he had run away, even though there was this contentious past, they tried to employ his literacy on behalf of the British. And so the British ended up taking him to a bunch of places where he slowly learned English, and he became a translator, and he became uh, a manager of Oglethrope's um, affairs and estate, but he was always very uncomfortable with uh, his condition, and eventually the French actually imprison him, probably because as a result of his relationship with the British. But despite his experiences, I mean, or one could say perhaps as a result of his experiences, he leaves us the most detailed account of his life in slavery. And he leaves this fantastic series of autobiographies, religious texts. So Ayuba Suleiman Diallo fought from tooth and nail from very beginning contentiously against slavery his literacy was then uh, exploited and used by uh, the colonists but he managed to retain some element of self writing down his autobiography letting his memory remain long after he was gone as a testament that that islam existed in this time period um and existed um amongst the uh, amongst africans uh, and that, that islam was part of the fab early fabric of colonial america even if that history is erased as a result of that tension he's imprisoned he faces all sorts of repression and whatnot but he manages to leave some remnant of him vis-a-vis his autobiography. The other story I want to tell you is that of a guy named Hot Tamale Louie. His name is actually Zarif Khan, who migrates to America in 1909, very early on. Migrates to America from Afghanistan. It's believed he lived somewhere in the Khyber Pass between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And he, he wanders about the Midwest, and eventually he settles down in Sheridan, Wyoming, where he starts to sell tamales. He has a stick uh, with buckets on it, and on each of the buckets, he puts tamales, and he sells tamales, and he's very mobile. He's kind of the first, uh, you know, uh, you know, what do you call those? Food trucks, if you will, in America, but he's, he's holding them on his shoulder, and he goes from uh, outside the courthouse to outside the bar, and he sells these tamales. And he's very—he's affectionately referred to as uh, the Turkish man who sells tamales. He's, which is inaccurate. He was not Turkish, but eventually he he manages to save up his money and create his own. He, he establishes his own restaurant, and the restaurant starts to sell pies and ice cream and tamales and chili, all sorts of different foods. Well, Zarif Khan or Hot Tamale Louis becomes the kind of father of the Muslim community in Sheridan, Wyoming. Muslims start to migrate over a series of decades, and they all kind of. Uh, gravitate around Hot Tamale Louie, who becomes a local legend and a, and a favorite of the city. Both of these people, I think, indicate to us uh, the kind of relationship of Islam in America, that it existed from the very beginning, that colonists brought over Islam when they brought over African slaves, and that while that history is contentious, it's not one, it's not a rosy history. We, we can't just say, oh, Islam is, is, you know, it's American, it's an American religion, it's perfectly, so no, it's a contentious history. The, the f- history of oppression and suppression and forced conversion is real. But so too is the history of migration and of coming in 
to America as Zarif Khan and transforming into hot tamale Louie, a Muslim man from Afghanistan selling tamales. I mean, that is what could be more American uh, than that? Both of these represent the stories of Islam in America. And it is a story that often gets suppressed and erased because of that tense history, because of the suppression of Islam, because of the slave rebellions, because of that moment. We often forget this history and we erase it. So hopefully this podcast acts as a bit of a corrective also introduces you this is far from comprehensive there's so much more that can be talked about but hopefully this is a starting point for people who are interested in learning more about it or at least can you can receive some or at least have some overview of islam in america anyways i'm going to end it here for now i'm going to give you some book recommendations i think are fantastic about this and then um we will continue with our final podcast next week The first book is Servants of Allah, African Muslims Enslaved in the Americas, written by Sylviane A. Diouf. I hope I'm, I'm, I think I'm mispronouncing her name. Really good book. It actually doesn't focus just on America. It looks at the entire New World. Um, It also has right on on the cover a portrait of Ayuba Suleiman Diallo. It's a really good book, uh, probably the definitive go-to book. Uh, on this particular topic, it looks at the relationship between uh, those who were brought from West Africa. It is very well researched, does a lot of fantastic work, looks at um, the moment of slavery. So th- we're talking about colonial America and colonial New World, not just uh, America and is- Islam broadly, but very much looking at the kind of material history there uh, to the to the best of uh, her abilities. Really fantastic research there. I also recommend. Uh, a history of Islam in America from the New World, from the New World to the New World, uh, by Kambiz Ghania Basri. Really fantastic book. He's a professor of religion, I believe, at Reed College. Um, fantastic. African Muslims in the Ant- in Antebellum America by Alan D. Austin. Also very good. And then finally, Thomas Jefferson's Quran, Islam and the Founders by Denise Spellberg, who's really kind of emerged as the foremost kind of public intellectual um, in our contemporary moment, kind of refuting some of the uh, issues with, with Donald Trump's claims and whatnot. And she re- wrote a brilliant piece about how Thomas Jefferson was really the first institute iftar dinners in the White House in honor of the Moroccan uh, ambassadors and diplomats, something that has become a bit of controversial in the contemporary moment. Anyways, I hope that you enjoy those books. They're fantastic, and you enjoyed this podcast. It was a little bit longer one, but I think there was a lot of themes that we needed to cover. Thank you for tuning in. You can follow me on uh, in social media, on Instagram and Twitter at A-A-O-L-O-M-I. And remember, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds.